Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to introduce part one of two in our series on truth tellers, where we'll be joined by players in the science and wellness world who are illuminating the ways the healthcare and food industries don't always have our best interest in mind. In part one of this series, our guest is David Light, CEO of Valisher, an independent laboratory that is most famous for detecting cancer-causing chemicals in products including antacid medicine, sunscreen, hand sanitizer, and dry shampoo. Committed to transparency throughout the healthcare industry, David's lab certifies the chemical composition of medications and other products that consumers use every day. Today, we will discuss how medications are made, who their suppliers are, how they are tested, and what the role of the FDA is. Furthermore, we will illuminate how you can be a better and smarter consumer as it pertains to your health. Just because a product is sold in a trusted store and as a trusted brand, we should always do our homework on products we put in and on our bodies. For today's conversation, we'll be joined by my co-host, New York pediatrician, Dr. Hella Baruch. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So David, you studied molecular biology in college. Did you always know you wanted to be a molecular biologist growing up, or how did you arrive at that discipline? I always knew that I wanted to be a scientist, and a scientist with impact. I think biotechnology really spoke to me as kind of the nexus point with a really impactful science and also one that's going to get something into the market, affect people's lives for the better, and hopefully improve the world. You know, as a kid, I did a lot of practical application of chemistry, um, which uh, was really kind of just uh, some homemade fireworks, and uh, had my little lab and, and shed. And uh, I think I just always just loved science as a whole. And uh, I think in college, you know, the molecular biology's, you know, specific application to biotech was just super interesting to me. And was there a specific class in college that like lit you up and said, oh, this is it? Was there a single moment or was it your destiny and you just had to find the lane to swim in? I, I felt very gung-ho in, in taking freshman organic chemistry right away. And I think that uh, taught me that, well, maybe I want uh, a little less of uh, the very intense, minute details of chemistry versus the kind of molecular biology and biotechnology where I can see it actually apply to uh, what uh, is going to you know, touch people's lives in the biotech industry. So you're bold because you're the only other person I know who took organic chemistry as a freshman in college. I did too. I think it's impressive that you, uh, both of you took it your freshman year and you're, uh, you're still here, <laughs> still in the sciences. Still in the sciences, but I don't think either of us are chemists. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that says something, right? So your journey is now you run a company called Valisher. What was your path to becoming like an investigative biotech Sherlock Holmes? You know, which is really kind of what I, I see you as, is you're out there trying to... F seek truth in science, but in a way that like is looking at specific molecules and products at scale. How did, how did you get here? I think it might be a combination of all of the above, honestly. Um, you know, I, I spent a number of years at, at a handful of different companies in kind of the biotech startup world. 
and uh, was really influenced by this amazing uh, leader in biotech called Jonathan Rothberg, who started a whole variety of extremely impactful companies, um, largely in the DNA sequencing space. Long story short, I, I really caught that bug of uh, starting something up that's really impactful, is going to save people's lives, and you know can actually get out into the market to have that impact you know, very quickly. And you know, Jonathan would always say that uh, we're working together to put a dent in the universe, right? And, and I, I really took that to heart. And you know, at the end of the day, we're not just putting a dent in the universe, but doing it in a way that is saving people's lives. I feel that runs through certainly everything that I've done. Um, I think there's a lot out there, especially in the biotech industry that, that has that potential. And I saw a lot of that in Valisher. So honestly, it was when a good friend of mine from college called me up and was telling me about all these problems he was having with his own medications and started to realize that, you know, this wasn't a problem that just affected my friend Adam, but it was really a systemic issue throughout the entire pharmaceutical supply chain where there just isn't this additional layer of independent quality assurance that we're so used to in so many other markets. And uh, I felt that could have that same high level of impact and good by turning it into an actual company. That's really interesting, David. Do you mind if I ask a question about the FDA? I, I think, you know, it correlates well with Valisher. And, uh, you know, we think of the FDA as a governing body that regulates the quality of drugs and products. From your experience, can you shed some light on the FDA's role in regulating the quality and safety of drugs and products? And perhaps can you touch on Valisher's influence over the FDA? Sure. So I think there's a lot of misconception that I shared as well before starting Valisher about what the FDA's role actually is. I think a lot of people assume that an FDA-approved product in the United States you know, every bottle has been tested by the FDA and they're overlooking all the steps in the supply chain and your pharmacy is checking and and all of these elements just actually aren't true. Um, the FDA's purpose and, and its congressional mandate is to be a regulator that oversees the data and the testing that everybody else is generating. And there's an extremely stringent process for a new drug to be approved. I think that's another thing that people really have this impression of it's a billion dollars to create a new drug. There's a really long and expensive FDA approval process, but that's for the original drug application to get that approval. But the approval process is not the same as quality monitoring once it's already been approved and being manufactured, and especially with generic drugs, which are 90% of what Americans take and are almost all made in India and China. The, all the actual testing of the product is almost exclusively done by the manufacturers sometimes and then self-reported to the FDA. The FDA tries to do inspections of these facilities, but again, that's looking at their paperwork, looking at their facilities, not actually checking the chemical quality of that product. And that's really where we designed Valisher to come in is be uh, this unique entity of a truly independent laboratory that's independently testing and certifying products before they go out to consumers and patients. I think the world kind of found out about you and learned about you with the Zantac. You apparently found some some chemicals in Zantac, which is, and according to my research, it was the active ingredient 
that caused NDMA exposure, which is a carcinogen. Do I have that right? Exactly. So Zantac, the active ingredient in Zantac is ranitidine. And what we identified in Valisher is while we were testing all the products that were going through our partner pharmacy, we got some syrup, uh, ranitidine syrup, actually prescribed for uh, one of our co-founders' infant daughter. And we ran that ranitidine through our analysis and we're finding tremendously high levels of uh, the carcinogen NDMA, uh, which was responsible already for a number of blood pressure medication recalls. And we found it in a manner where we, we filed a, this FDA citizen petition where we were claiming that it's not just potentially contaminating some batches, but was actually fundamental to the drug itself. The drug was unstable in forming NDMA, uh, potentially at high, very high levels. And that's what got the drug withdrawn uh, a number of months later. So I know that you, you've done uh, samples on, on dry shampoos and sunscreens and blood pressure medicines and diabetes medicines and infant formulas and, you know, on and on. But are these contaminants, like you said, like ranitidine turns into a carcinogen versus, oh, look, there's benzene in there. How did that get in there? One's a contaminant, one's a, the actual drug made a certain way becomes unstable in a certain formulation. Is that right? Exactly correct. And there's a few different buckets of these carcinogenic problems uh, that we've seen. And, and just in a few years, obviously, and being a small and new company, I think we're probably scratching the surface on each one of these buckets. But you have one bucket that you just described where you have something like ranitidine that is just fundamentally unstable. Any product that contains ranitidine would have this problem and it's forming a carcinogen. Then we have kind of on the polar opposite, a bucket like uh, sunscreen or, or body sprays, like we're talking about antiperspirants, where we see a contaminant that is almost certainly coming from the manufacturing process. Uh, some of the products are contaminated, some aren't, some batches are contaminated, some aren't. And then there's even some products in between like metformin, um, a diabetes medication that we identified also had high levels of the carcinogen NDMA where further studies have shown that sometimes it comes in as a contaminant from the manufacturing. Sometimes there's actually a reaction over time with the drug product that forms the carcinogen depending on some of the inactive ingredients. So long story short, you either have it being fundamental to the drug product like you had in Zantac and ranitidine, or it's purely from a manufacturing process. And then as science often is, there's, there's uh, exceptions to rules and you'll have some that are in between. So much to unpack there. So let me just start with the first thing, which is ranitidine. Does that mean that no ranitidine should ever be on the market because it's unstable in any preparation, in any formulation? Is that what I'm hearing you say? That's what we found at Valisher, and, and that's what we petitioned the FDA for and, and actually got a lot of action all over the world uh, before the, the FDA acted. There was dozens of countries that withdrew it, uh, Canada, within just a few days of our petition. There is uh, no formulation that we saw that, uh, that showed that ranitidine would be stable in it. And I should mention, though, that actually Zantac has come back onto the market, but they changed the active ingredient in it. So it is no longer ranitidine, it is now famotidine. So people might actually see Zantac on shelves, but uh, that's the active ingredient usually in, the active ingredient that people are familiar with in Pepsid, uh, famotidine. I would do want to go back to brand name and, and generics. I think that's an important vein. When I think about generic, I think about like 
chemicals coming from all over the, you know, China, India, wherever, going to somewhere to get manufactured, multiple vendors, multiple supply chain things. And by the time it turns into a pill and winds up in your pharmacy, the provenance of those molecules is probably almost impossible to retrace back to their original sources. Whereas if you have a brand name medication from Bayer or Roche or pick the, you think that, okay, that's made in a factory. That's one place where there's like a much more rigorous process that made those than the other ones. But is that true? Yes, it's a tough question because it's really going to depend on the company, on the drug product. And I think long story short is there's probably more consistency in general when you stick with one company. Um, That might be true of a generic company just as much as it is a brand company. There are plenty of brand companies that have factories all over the world that also switch them around or there'll be products that are licensed. So there absolutely can be switching. Um, Also to the point of the original manufacturer of the compounds, I think that affects probably the brand companies just as much as it affects generic companies. You know, the active pharmaceutical ingredients are one uh, component of those chemicals, but there's also the fine chemicals that make the active ingredients, which are, according to many reports, almost exclusively coming from China. So, you know, the the provenance of a product is, is a difficult question. There's particularly low visibility into that with drugs. You know where your shirts are made. You don't get any information about that on your drugs. Why is that, by the way? Because you just said, if look, if it's from the same generic company, then at least there's probably some consistency there. But I take a medicine and, and every time I get a refill, like the pills are slightly different sizes. And so, yeah, I think that is a fundamental problem in this entire market um, is that unfortunately, the drug market operates by a few large purchasers uh, that are making all those decisions, right? So you as a consumer, you can't say, I want manufacturer A of my generic atorvastatin, or, you know, if you're taking sertraline, um, you know, obviously there's Zoloft or there's a whole bunch of uh, generic versions. And it's very hard to get a consistent generic because the market is unfortunately only valuing price uh, at a very large degree. And so they're constantly switching what they're buying from in your pharmacy to get the best possible price. And I mean, anybody can look at the tablets and obviously they look different. Uh, They are different. Is that a clinically significant difference? Um, That's a good question for a doctor. I'm I'm a scientist, not a medical doctor. So I, I think there's a lot of concern that variability can be clinically significant, especially in certain drugs like psychotropics or narrow therapeutic index drugs. And it is, I think, a fundamental market problem that you as the consumer typically don't have that choice. And there's just, you know, unfortunately, no transparency either. Even it's hard for you to even know who's making your drug, where did it come from? You know, really, a lot of the information you literally get about your shirt is not available for your meds. Why isn't there a made in on medication labels? Why wouldn't we do that? Is that just impossible to do because nobody wants to do it or it's too hard to do? It's it's definitely not impossible, right? If we can do it for shirts and uh, you know, almost everything you'd buy on Amazon, then surely we could do it for medications. I think it's a, it's a regulatory gap. You know, if there was more done on forcing that from a regulatory perspective, I think it absolutely could be done. And uh, yeah, I think it's just another example 
of unfortunately how different this pharmaceutical market works than almost any other market that we're used to. And you know, you're, you talk about the information on food. That was actually one of the things that we tried to do at Valisher's partner pharmacy was give that kind of transparency. We, we would give certificates of analysis of all the information that we were independently generating and that would be provided to patients with every prescription. So just like the nutritional information on food, you know, shouldn't you see some of that transparency on your meds? I think is a very important point and uh, hope that the industry will go in that direction down the road. And David, is there any way as a consumer or, for example, as a patient in one of these healthcare systems to know whether products have been vetted or um, run through your lab? Yeah, so we're um, in, in, at this stage right now, it's actually the whole Valisher system is being incorporated as a quality assurance in their own distribution systems. So it's actually not yet being messaged directly to the patients. And I think it just even that underscores how big of a supply chain problem and headache it is for existing healthcare systems. Um, all the problems that occur with medications as a whole. You know, there's there's actually three recalls a day in the United States. Uh, you know, you hear about some famous ones, but there's a lot of them that almost all are due to quality problems. And so having an additional layer of quality assurance just seems so obviously needed. And some of these large entities are actually figuring out how to plug it in as part of their own quality programs. And I think not too far down the road, it'll it'll go to the patient messaging and, and be part of hopefully bringing people in to realize that in this location, we have independently certified drug products and, and what that means. And uh, I think that is uh, we, we certainly saw it being very important for patients to see that uh, quality assurance. When you say three recalls a day, is that what you said? That's right. Not all recalls are announced by the FDA. And uh, I'm honestly not entirely aware of the mechanism of which ones get announced or which ones don't. It could be up to the manufacturers. Another common misconception that I certainly had is that uh, recalls are all entirely voluntary in the United States. The FDA actually doesn't have the legal authority to mandate a recall in drug products. Um, and we've worked with members of Congress, like Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, to get the Recall Unsafe Drugs Act passed to give the FDA that power, but that has not yet passed. So I'm happy to send you a link. Um, there is a link of all the registered uh, recalls, and uh, there's quite a lot of them. And how do these recalls, like, how are they prompted? Is it independent labs like you that are just like randomly selectively testing certain products and drugs? Or is there, you know, error that goes into it where they see something goes wrong and they're tested for that reason or a combination of the two? Well, honestly, uh, since vouchers uh, uh, come into this arena, there's now, I believe, a non-trivial category of recalls that were started when a problem was identified by an independent laboratory uh, like Valisher. It's exciting to see that impact, but it does raise the question of where are these other uh, recalls coming from? And you know, we, we published a paper with uh, about a dozen key opinion leaders, uh, including folks from Long Island University and NYU Langone, Yale, Columbia, Stanford. So we published a paper in the Journal of American Pharmacists Association that is trying to take all this data that's, that's out there, including 
chemical data from laboratories like Valisher and, and regulatory data, adverse events and others, to try and independently score the quality of drug products. Another avenue for getting people engaged uh, with purchasing the right drugs and perhaps even you know, individual patients at least seeing a score for a particular manufacturer, a particular drug product of a particular manufacturer. But the reason I bring it up uh, to your question on recalls is we had a lot of discussion on whether or not recalls should be used as a quality scoring metric and came to the conclusion that it wasn't going to be used, at least in this first iteration of the program that we presented, because it's very hard to know all those motivations or why certain manufacturers of a drug do a recall, but others don't. Um, you know, we've had plenty of situations um, where you know, there'll be a drug problem um, and then you see some recalls right away and then others either take a long time or don't happen. So is a company doing a voluntary recall really trying to do the right thing and, and has a very kind of mature and commendable quality management system versus one that you don't see many recalls from, but maybe they're just not looking or you know, have a much less mature quality management system. So I think it's really hard to know. And even to look at it from a consumer perspective, you know, problems like hand sanitizer, right? So we had lots of contaminated hand sanitizer on the market and, you know, some companies that took action and some that didn't take any action, even after the FDA tested their product, the FDA had a do not use list. Some of those products were still on the market for a long time. Some weren't. So it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult situation. Speaking of hand sanitizer and um, over-the-counter products like that, you know, as a consumer, we hear a lot of different terms listed in ingredients like sulfates and parabens and benzenes that all are just, you know, kind of labeled as bad. And from my research, it seems like just going through everyday life, it's pretty much impossible to completely avoid exposure to these types of chemicals. Can you help us break down like, what these terms actually mean and how we should be thinking about avoiding them in a practical and realistic way? Sure. And I think that's a really important question because as consumers and even scientists and professionals in the industry have trouble differentiating here sometimes because you hear so often, this is bad for you, this is bad for you, or now it's good for you. And it's, I think, well-defined in two primary buckets uh, in terms of these kinds of chemicals that you hear about. There's one bucket where it's concerning. So it could be some new data that's come out or, or scientists are actively looking at it. You know, products like parabens or you know, sulfates and, and uh, PFAS molecules. These are a lot of molecules that are known to be in products and uh, new data is coming out that maybe we should think twice about it. And it's a good bucket of concern, I like to call it. And then there's another completely separate bucket. I mean, scientifically speaking, they're practically different planets where it's known problems, where there's a scientific consensus, it's been studied for decades. And these are, are chemicals like benzene, where it's been studied for over 100 years. There's numerous epidemiological studies that directly show the risk of increased cancer in human beings, not even in animal models, but in human beings. You know, chemicals like asbestos, you know, these are extremely well known to be very bad. Other chemicals like lead, 
you know, the entire fuel industry, unleaded gasoline came because this was such a huge problem that had so much science behind it that entire industries had to change. And that's a completely different bucket of a problem than kind of the concern bucket. And that often also comes with a lot of regulation. You know, you're seeing a lot of recalls due to benzene because everybody agrees that benzene is extremely bad and should not be in those products. Um, you're not seeing recalls for parabens because it's still an open question. So, and that's a really important differentiator. I think at the very least, when you see these issues around a known problem bucket with a scientific consensus, those are areas to be concerned about. You know, it doesn't mean you don't use the product anymore, but, you know, those are really serious areas. And the reports, at least when Ballisher does them, are online. We publish them. You can see all of the data. Uh, you know, there are people that look through them and look at batch numbers or brand names. And, you know, you have, you have that information in front of you. Practically speaking, you know, we've seen a lot of benzene problems in aerosol spray products. Uh, a lot of people have mentioned that perhaps avoiding some of the aerosol spray versions of some of these uh, consumer products uh, might be a good idea. You know, is that an area to lower the risk? And then it's hopefully going to be a lot of action taken on the industry. Right? That's why you're seeing these recalls. So how does benzene get into these things anyway? Is it like an accident or is it an additive that they hope you don't find? Or You're not going to find it on a label is very important. A lot of yeah, individuals have asked us, like, do I just look for benzene? That would be like looking for is lead on the label. You know, it's not going to be there. Is mercury on there? You know, obviously not. So it almost certainly gets in there by accident. And it's a manufacturing contaminant, essentially. And, and specifically for benzene, a number of companies have pointed at the propellants. So what is actually doing the spray in an aerosol can is often propane or butane. These probably sound familiar because it's what you have in your lighter or in your propane grill. But those fuels are often contaminated with benzene. Benzene is known to contaminate the petroleum uh, industry and, and the products. And if it was going to be used in a consumer product, especially a drug product, so sunscreens are drug products, antiperspirants are actually drug products, it's supposed to be at a pharmaceutical grade. They are supposed to refine those materials to the point that they don't have any of these detectable levels of contaminants like benzene especially. But unfortunately, uh, that was not true and was not detected anywhere along these chains. You know, back to your earlier point about the original molecules that might be used to make a drug product. Well, that's the same in a consumer product. There's raw materials that are coming from who knows where at the beginning of the supply chain, really. And yet these problems persisted throughout that chain as you got the raw material that then got formulated, that then got packaged and uh, boxed and shipped and distributed and kind of this whole long chain until it finally got on the shelf, which is where we bought it from in, in a lot of these studies. You just didn't have any point along that entire chain that was picking up these really serious contaminations. So I think it's an important point to a uh, case study to underscore how critical it is to insert this concept of independent quality assurance into the supply chain. I can't talk about, sorry, benzene without bringing up the dry shampoo recall, which I know a lot of women were disappointed about. You know, when they, when I think it was a few months ago when that recall was issued, you'd go to, you know, it was all over the news and you'd go to the links and they'd have a list, a long list of manufacturers and the specific 
dry shampoos that were recalled. But the more I hear you talk, it seems like there's no guarantee that all of the dry shampoos on the market are tested. So can we assume that any like aerosol products or really any aerosol dry shampoo on the market is risky to use? Or can you really rely on those lists that, that come out in the media? Yeah, so I think you're, you're touching on an important point is that it, it is hard to know the real chemical quality of a product in front of you, you know, absent the data that comes out sometimes in, in reports like vouchers and uh, in recalls, you know, sometimes. And we did our first big study on benzene in uh, early 2021, right? And uh, we're still seeing recalls for benzene almost two years later. And I think it is disappointing that it takes this long sometimes. I think that makes a lot of uncertainty for consumers. I mean, I'm sure it's being, uh, it's there by accident, but you'd hope that it would be a quick path towards remedying these, these issues. The fact that this, the regulatory system in the United States is voluntary, I think is surprising to many and does make it very difficult for the consumer. And, and so I think the data that we've seen so far now shows that there is a higher prevalence of these benzene contaminations in aerosol products. So maybe at the very least, acquiring more on what the companies that you're using are actually doing about this kind of quality assurance. Are they using any independent testing or others? Absent going to the companies and trusting them and having them tell us the truth, how do you decide what products to do? and What is the process for for doing that. Because even if you did have a, a trust mark or a stamp of approval like this, we've tested this and it's good. I mean, that's until they change manufacturers and supply chains, which could be next month, right? How long, what is the half-life of the trust mark? Yeah. And, and it's, what's even the half-life kind of shelf life of the whole industry is, uh, is quite long sometimes. You know, a lot of drug products are batch manufactured to last for three years. So even when you identify a product, you might have lingering issues quite literally for at least three years um, if those products weren't recalled and agree that a lot of these even testing programs and a lot of what we're seeing that's coming off the ground, which is very exciting, takes a while to finally make it to the consumer. So I think as we and, and even others have been looking at doing this kind of independent testing, you know, there's a large health systems like the University of Kentucky Health System that uh, announced their own independent testing program for a lot of the drugs that are going through their hospital systems. And, and they're even publishing some of that data. And as there's more and more data out there, we're also getting better and better feels of where there's higher risk, right? So in terms of what Valisher is looking at next, you know, we obviously looked at a few different areas related to benzene as we were seeing the initial data and reports, like when we filed on, on hand sanitizer, uh, we thought the gelling agents could be particularly susceptible, what makes a hand sanitizer gel-like. And uh, the FDA has actually said that a, few, a number of months later also. And uh, we found that in, in after-sun care products like the aloes. And while doing that investigation, we also found it in other sunscreens and sprays. And we started identifying the spray problem. So we, we are getting more and more data-driven in terms of where are the biggest areas of risks and problems. And, and honestly, a lot of the work that we do with big healthcare systems are on not all you know, thousands of drugs that might exist in a pharmacy. You can't boil the ocean overnight, but 
focusing efforts in drug products that are higher risk than others. You know, where have we seen the most problems? Where have we seen signals where there's issues? Not just a recall, but are they using certain carcinogenic solvents that we've seen in other data that could turn into carcinogens like NDMA or other nitrosamines? So we're, we're getting more and more sophisticated at where to look and identify these issues and ideally working with the supply chain, prevent them from being on the shelf, prevent them from being in front of patients where it can actually cause harm. Okay, so I have a question for you, Dave, personally. If, if you were going to take a medicine, you, you look so young that I'm, I'm sure you're not on any medicines, but if you were going to take a medicine, would you buy brand name or generic? A, and part B is, if you did brand name or generic, would you run it through your lab because you got the machines? And just to double check. Because you could. Yeah. So, look, Zantac was a brand, right? So, I mean, I think the fact that it is a brand is not an absolute guarantee of its quality. I think it's a measure towards consistency because at least you know it's that manufacturer that has control of its own supply chain as opposed to going from different manufacturers as often happens with a prescription generic product. And if I was taking it, I wouldn't until I saw some independent testing data on it, honestly, from everything that I've seen. And there's a lot more sources on that than there used to be. And I think it's a really important and critical element of uh, everything you put in your body, right? People are so concerned about you know where your food is grown. Is it organic or not? Does it have gluten or GMO-free or all these labels that we can even debate as scientists? I came from genetics. Uh, you know, the, the, what does GMO-free even mean is, I think, a pretty complex, complex question. But we're so used to that on what goes into our bodies and onto our bodies. But yet, we, you know, it's so hard to get that information on pharmaceuticals. And I think we really need a lot more of it. As a pediatrician and as a mom, I know you have some children too. There's a kind of a newer space out there of many products that are direct to consumer, charge a lot more money, are marketed really well, that boast being paraben free, sulfate free. From my research and looking into them, I don't see any stamp of regulatory approval or anything like that that can vouch for these products. As a parent with kids, would you pay extra to invest in? products that claim to be paraben-free, sulfate-free, and so forth? Oh, um, yeah. So absolutely, I think as a parent of five children, that the quality of the products is something that we look at all the time. And and, and back to your question before about medications that, that I take, prescription medications are one thing, but also consumer products like sunscreen. Uh, we, we go through a lot of sunscreen in the summer. And uh, I looked at all the data for getting products for my children. And I think that you got to look at what even these badges mean. You know, I think sometimes you see things that like GMO free on something. And, and I, again, I'm not as a scientist, I'm not really sure what that means. But, you know, is there something that's being done on the independent quality of that product? Uh, you do see this more in some areas. You know, there's lines of supplements now that have independently tested marks, which is, which is great to see. You know, you have chains like CVS that have a tested to be trusted program. You, you can look that up and they have a program where they leverage independent testing for their supplements and, and dietary products. So I think more and more, we're starting to see that engagement with industry. I absolutely look at that for uh, my own children, my own family. 
And I think it is an important trend that I hope uh, only continues to grow. So can you uh, share this list with us, David, <laughs> of products you recommend? <laughs> ah, uh, well, I, I think the lists, honestly, of uh, those kinds of consumer products like sunscreens and, and others that we've done analyses and studies on are public. They're a little difficult to digest sometimes for the individual consumer, but at least all the data is there. There are groups like Consumer Labs, by the way, that have taken some of our data and condensed it into recommendations. Uh, at least there is good steps towards getting some of that transparency out there, whereas I think it was largely missing even just a few years before. So I, ju I just quickly went to the uh, Consumer Lab website when you said it, just to, to take a quick look. And so you you trust these guys. These This is legit, right? Because there's so many even trust marks that you have to go out and wonder if they're trusted and, you know, what's their business model and what 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 are their potential conflicts of interest, you know, and it, it's just hard to know these days. I think they specifically do a good job where they're leveraging independent testing themselves for a lot of the reports they have. We've shared, obviously, some of our reports with them. So, you know, they've reviewed and discussed recommendations and things like sunscreens and, and other products that, that they've looked at. And I think they're a good source of information. And I've really enjoyed working with, uh, with the folks at Consumer Labs. I, I think it's been, other than ourselves saying it's important data, you know, the, the recalls that have ensued and, and the regulatory actions that have happened, I think all underscores that th this is robust science having a lot of impact and, and needs to be taken quite seriously. And uh, good to see some action you know, happening in industry, but no better actions than you know, taking it upon yourselves to actually look at what's out there and, and vote with your actions as a consumer. What is one of the biggest revelations you've seen in the field in your you know, journey here? What is the thing that you know the last five years or that you've really seen change? It's been fascinating to me, some of the broad misconceptions that I had as well about how the supply chain works, how regulation works. I think we often defer that silver bullet to the FDA, right? We say that, oh, everything is quality perfect in the United States because we have the FDA. And, and I think the FDA does a lot of great work, but can't defer everything to one organization to police the entire planet. And it's just not possible. And it's been very encouraging to see some large players out there actually get engaged on this. You know, we've testified before the Senate. We've been invited to speak at the White House recently. And, and I think there's a lot of understanding that these are real problems. You know, we may not have perfect solutions yet, and there's going to need to be some really big shakeups in, in order to, to get there, to, to really address these fundamental issues. But I think it's absolutely possible. We're seeing a lot of this happen now at grand kind of enterprise scale. And that's been very encouraging for me over the last you know, five years of, of really delving into this. It was a, a researcher at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center that we were working with when we were looking at uh, Zantac issues that pointed out to me, you guys, you Valisher are a small laboratory that's just starting off with this concept of, of independently testing. And you are tripping over problems left and right that are having global impacts. And you know, I'm sure you're doing some really great work, but it just underscores that you're scratching the surface, right? That the amount of problems that must be out there 
for you know a dozen scientists to be identifying some of the you know, most impactful global recalls that we've seen in in a number of years, I think is uh, unfortunately underscoring that there's some really really serious problems out there. And I think that's been one of the most shocking things for me when doing Valisher is that we kind of from Adam's story. And the stories that we'd heard from some of the top doctors at the Cleveland Clinic and and others uh, that have been very vocal about these issues made us think that we need to do this and we probably are going to find some problems along the way. But the fact that we could find so many that are so big in such a short period of time, I think underscores that we really do need to do more about this and that it's not just marketing. It shouldn't just be some fad of, you know, this mark or that mark or, you know, now you get concerned about fat and then it's sugar and then it's you know all sorts of things and people have short attention spans but for industry to take this seriously is i think incredibly important and and to see some of the biggest decision makers that don't do things overnight but that are moving in this direction because this has been such a big problem that's only getting worse is great to see that we're going there so i'm I'm very hopeful that the next five years are going to be really focused on addressing these issues and making things better not just realizing that these issues have gotten so serious that they're absolutely real and, you know, just kind of looking in the dark or playing whack-a-mole on, on recalls, you know, here and there. We need fundamental change and very hopeful that's where we're going. Well, you are a force of good, David, and I'm glad you're doing the work that you're doing. This has been incredibly informative. I've got so many more questions to ask you, but maybe we'll do that over a beer that we test in your lab to make sure that it's there's nothing contaminated in it perfect uh, and talk about it i'd love to hear you know in the future your thoughts on if you had a magic wand how you would solve all these problems and what policies you put in place but thank you so much for being on the show and we will continue to engage and talk offline and figure out ways that we can help you and i think we definitely want to get this word out really appreciate it and looking forward to a quality beer together sometime as well thank you david thank you for listening to inside medicine a private medical production We hope we've inspired you to think differently about your health and the healthcare system. Please subscribe to our podcast and our medical dispatch. You can find the link in the show notes.